The Thrill Killers by Dick Lear and Mitchell Zuckoff. The two boys saw themselves as big-time bad guys, serious criminals who would be infamous across America. A life of crime requires cash, though, and the easy way to get cash is to take it. So on a chilly weekend, they headed towards the Dartmouth College campus, looking for trouble. Vermont State Police Sergeant Jocelyn Stoll was driving her vehicle to a priority call when she saw a car stuck in the snow on the shoulder of curving, narrow Bethel Mountain Road near Rochester, Vermont. It was 2.55 on a Friday afternoon, which for January 19, 2001, meant it was practically twilight. Everything was grey, the sky, the roads and the woods. Though en route to a possible despondent suicidal subject, the police officer pulled over to offer assistance. Two teenage boys were standing outside the car, a 1987 silver Audi with Vermont number plates. Even before speaking with them, the 16-year veteran policewoman was reading the tyre tracks in the snow. The driver had slid in the snow and tried to straighten up, but, she guessed, lost control. After a zig and a zag, the car crossed the centre line and came to rest on the opposite shoulder. Stoll walked up to the boys and asked them to tell her what happened. That's when the lies began. They'd pulled onto the shoulder on purpose, one of the boys tried explaining, so he could take a leak. Where are you heading, the officer asked. The driver hesitated before answering. Skiing. Whereabouts? Hesitating again, the driver looked down at the ground. Sugarbush. Stoll asked for their identification. The driver, scowling, gave her a licence that said he was from Chelsea, Vermont. His date of birth was May 24, 1984. He was 182 centimetres tall, 70 kilos. His name was James Parker. By contrast, the second boy, taller than the first, was accommodating but in an exaggerated, overly solicitous way. His ID showed he was also from Chelsea, with a birth date of May 8, 1983. Stoll read the name. Robert Tullock. She wasn't buying the skiing story. The car had been travelling east, away from the Sugarbush Mountain ski area. Though she saw two backpacks, she couldn't see any ski apparel or ski equipment. The officer also knew there had been a rash of home burglaries lately. Her gut told her to pursue the matter. Maybe ask the driver to consent to a car search. But Stoll was in a hurry to a possible life-threatening situation. She stayed long enough to run routine licence and registration checks, but nothing came back. In an incident report filed later, Sergeant Stoll wrote, I confirmed that a wrecker was responding to assist these subjects and went on my way. The boys gave her a bad feeling. My suspicions of criminal activity were significant, she wrote in her report. Stoll was correct to feel creepy about Robert Tullock and Jim Parker. While their friends were thinking about university, these two turned inward, scheming about how to get out of Chelsea. Their best notion was to turn to a life of crime. They could steal and rob, and when they had enough cash they would head off, maybe going as far as Australia. They never thought much about getting caught. After all, they were higher beings who could not be expected to conform to the rules and expectations that burdened their inferiors. One early scheme involved stealing mail. They also took a boat and an all-terrain vehicle, but this earned them nothing. Impatient Robert, 
who called himself an incredibly smart, witty and scheming individual, began convincing his more malleable friend to try something big, something bold, something to make them famous, even notorious. Something to get them out of dumpy, small-town Chelsea fast. Something like murder. Driving around in June 2000 one day, they saw some older people parked on the side of the road. Robert turned to Jim and suggested, let's jump them. We could use rocks to bash their heads and then take their money. Jim rejected the idea. Robert, however, using a twisted logic only he could follow, would argue that it was important for them to establish themselves as killers before they headed out, because we were going to be badasses when we left, Jim said later. Soon they were hatching a new plan. They'd find a secluded house, ambush the owners, take their money and leave them dead. On a cool night in July 2000, in the woods of Verchier, Vermont, not far from Chelsea, they dug a grave for the bodies they expected to dispose of. Then they hiked through the woods until finding a house and cutting its phone lines. Jim pulled on a face mask and crouched in the bushes while Robert knocked on the door. But the plan came apart when the owner, 47-year-old Andrew Patty, refused to open the door and flashed a gun. The boys scurried home. They were defeated, but only for the moment. The boys had met in secondary school, and even then Jim had a desire to stir things up. He lived with his family in a weatherboard house set on seven hectares, where there was also a shop and an office for his father's contracting business. Though both parents were outsiders, they'd met in San Diego. They quickly established themselves in Chelsea. John Parker was a basketball coach and chairman of the Recreation Committee. Joan was a vegetarian jock, a nationally ranked racquetball player who continued to compete after having two children. She worked as a racquetball instructor. The Tulloch family, Diane and Mike and their four kids, Robert was the third, could not have been more different. The couple was from New Jersey originally, Mike from Jersey City and Diane from the more affluent Glen Ridge. Diane was at first a stay-at-home mum and then became a visiting nurse. Her husband, by contrast, was painfully shy, said a friend. After renting for a while, in 1994 they bought a rambling old house on Chelsea's main street where Mike could have his carpentry workshop at the back. For Jim, Robert had an immediate allure. He was very intelligent, maybe not enough common sense to go with it. That's kind of the same for both of us, Jim said later. If Jim was the actor inspired by Robert's direction, Robert was the ideas man, emboldened by a partner with energy. After school, the boys usually headed to Robert's house, playing Nintendo games like James Bond, Beetle Racing and Doom, a graphic shooting game. Robert's parents weren't around much, so the kids had the run of the place. Always a voracious reader, Robert read Nietzsche on his own during high school. What particularly drew him was the German philosopher's exploration of nihilism, the existential notion that God is dead and that no moral values exist. Increasingly, the boys parroted each other, their ideas becoming truly bizarre. They concluded that Hitler was very cunning and should be admired. Even in tiny Chelsea, population 1,250, their friends and family mostly missed the shadows that were falling over these two lives. The morning after their brush with the police officer, Robert and Jim got back on the road. They had switched cars, exchanging the Audi that Jim usually drove for his mother's green Subaru. 
they also had a big new plan. They'd pretend to be doing an environmental survey, and once inside a house, they'd overcome the occupants. The one carryover from Friday was the backpacks. Of course they needed the backpacks. Inside were their shiny brand new Sogseal 2000 knives, weapons they'd bought by email. The boys were soon on North Hollow Road, a street they knew from an earlier reconnaissance drive. Jim drove about 800 metres in until they spotted 540 North Hollow, where Franklin and Jane Sanders, a retired couple, were working on their new home, a sprawling post and beam house. The boys pulled up and were standing on the front steps when Franklin Sanders opened the door. He was an ideal target, an older man, someone they could subdue easily. Taking the lead, Robert said they were high school students doing interviews about the environment. Did he have some free time? No, Sanders told the boys curtly. I'm too busy. I'm tiring my pool. And he shut the door. Just like that. The boys had been totally dismissed. Why didn't you jump him, Jim asked. Didn't think of that, Robert admitted. It happened so fast. They drove around for a while. There was second guessing and some sniping, but soon they emerged from their funk. They were nearing the route that would take them back to Chelsea when one of them mentioned Hanover. Hanover, New Hampshire? People there have a lot of money. Hanover, what a great idea. No one would ever connect them to the town known best as the home of Dartmouth College, a bastion of the Ivy League. The boys almost never went there. The preppy atmosphere was a turn-off. Soon they were scoping out a two-storey, 300-square-metre house at 115 Trescott Road in the adjoining hamlet of Etna. The boys did not know that the house belonged to Half and Suzanne Zantop, beloved professors at Dartmouth and adoring parents. On Saturday, January 27, Half and Suzanne threw themselves into their day. Half worked first, around five in the morning, so he could bring his wife tea in bed. Suzanne sat at the computer and did some emailing, and around 10.30am called her friend Roxana Verona and invited her to dinner that night. Suzanne taught in the German department. Pretty and petite, with dark hair and an intense manner, she'd been the chair since 1996 and was a prolific scholar. She also had a wide circle of friends. A dozen women thought of her as their closest friend in the world. If Suzanne was Quicksilver, Half, whom she'd met at Stanford in the 1960s when they were students, was rock solid. Tall and handsome, with a close-cropped beard, the Professor of Earth Sciences was ranked among the top teachers in his department. Postgraduate students sometimes called him the rock god. The Xantops were devoted to their daughters, both in their twenties. They tended to know when the next exam was coming up, they knew when things were going well with the boyfriends and when they weren't, said a friend and colleague of the couples. Veronica was doing a residency in family medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. Mariana was at Columbia University in New York, training as a nurse midwife. Recently, Half had been mulling over retirement. The couple had discussed whether Suzanne, who at 55 was seven years younger than Half, should retire early. They wanted more time for sailing in Maine and visits to Berlin. Both were native Germans. Mostly, friends said, they just wanted to be together. Late on the morning of January 27, there came a knock at their door. Half went to answer it. Before him stood two clean-cut young men, tall and slim. They said they were students from the mountain school over in Verschier, Vermont, 
and were doing an environmental survey for a class project. Hold on a second, Half said. My wife is making lunch. He left the boys standing outside while he went to talk to Suzanne. How could he turn them away? He and Suzanne were teachers and these boys were students, and they wanted to talk about the environment. You know, I like what the mountain school does, Half said. And he ushered them inside. As they followed their host, Robert and Jim could see the comfortable furniture, invitingly laid out to encourage guests to sit and stay. Potted trees and hanging plants added colour and life. The boys also noticed cooking aromas wafting from the kitchen. A pot of broth and vegetables was simmering on the stove as Suzanne chopped herbs, onions and greens on a cutting board. Two blocks of cheese and three slices of bread occupied another board. The head count was now at two. The boys hadn't known how many people they'd find at home, but they had assumed there would be a couple. Half led them into the study, turning three chairs inward, creating an intimate circle. They were all so close together their knees were practically touching. Okay, what do you guys want to know, Half said. Jim set the backpack down and pulled out a notebook. Robert began the interview, talking off the cuff as he always did, speaking vaguely of global warming, depleting oil reserves, the costs and benefits of nuclear power. Missing from his rap was any real logic. Yet Half patiently accommodated the boys. Wherever he could, he tried to help Robert, guiding the inquiry. About ten minutes into the interview, as Jim scribbled down words, a thought crossed his mind. Half Zantop is an all right guy. We don't need to kill him. But Robert was going another way. For him, Half's critique, however well-intentioned, was a slap in the face. When Half told the already coiled Robert, you need to be more prepared, Robert had heard enough. He wanted to answer the insult with an attack. Half began looking for the phone number of a friend who might be able to help the boys. As Half turned to his desk, Robert leaned forward. Making no sound, he removed one of the 30-centimetre combat knives from the backpack and pulled the knife from its sheath. He folded the fingers of his right hand round the moulded black grip. The 18-centimetre stainless steel blade with serrated teeth was pointed up. Remembering that the friend's number might be in his wallet, Half leaned sideways and pulled the wallet from the hip pocket of his jeans. He swivelled back to face the boys and flipped through the billfold. At that moment, Robert sprang from his chair. Lunging, he thrust the knife deep into the professor's chest. Half let out an awful scream, and together he and Robert fell backwards over Half's chair. Jim was the bystander as Robert made more terrible thrusts, working in a sudden and silent rage. But everything changed the minute Suzanne ran into the study. She screamed, grasped at Robert's leg, and reached desperately for her husband. Robert locked eyes with Jim. Slit her throat, he yelled. Jim could have pulled Suzanne out of the study and saved her life or he might have abandoned her and saved himself. But disobeying Robert never crossed his mind. At that moment, Jim saw the two of them as one. There was no room left in him to hear his own conscience, his parents' voices or anyone else's. Pausing briefly, Jim raised his knife. In a single swift motion, he sliced Suzanne's throat. With the Zantops dead, Robert Tullock and Jim Parker bolted from the study, Jim gave his bloody knife to Robert, and they bounded out to their car. Robert stashed the knives under the passenger side floor mat, while Jim backed out of the driveway.
The heat rising from their breath and their bodies quickly fogged the windows, making it impossible to see. Jim was panicking. They wound down the windows and stuck their heads out. Am I hitting anything? Jim screamed. Robert guided him and soon they were out on the open road. Jim looked at his right hand and saw blood. He knew it wasn't his. He was scared but he was unmarked. Robert was worse off, physically at least. His pants were blood-drenched, mostly from a deep cut above his right knee. But Robert's main focus for the moment was the wallet he'd taken from half Zantop. Robert counted US $340. It wasn't much. According to his confession later, Jim was surprised about how things went, pissed off because our plan didn't work. They just wanted to get back home so they could clean up and decide what to do next. Then Jim realised something was missing. Where's the knife sheaths, he asked, cursing. They searched the car, but the sheaths weren't there. As fear washed over them, they talked about turning around. But for now, they went home and changed. They hid the knives, Robert's bloody pants and half Xantop's wallet in a gym bag and tossed it into a broken-down Volvo near Jim's father's woodworking shed. Then they holed up in Robert's room. That evening, Roxana Verona arrived at Suzanne's house for dinner. As she rang the bell, she placed her hand on the doorknob. She was surprised to feel it turn. Suzanne must have left the door unlocked for me, Roxana thought. How thoughtful of her. I'm in, Roxana called. It was 6.35pm. Roxana entered the main area of the ground floor and headed for the dining room. She looked into the kitchen but saw no one. Suzanne? Suzanne, she called out. Roxana sensed something unusual about the silence. No footsteps could be heard from any of the rooms. She turned towards the study, where the light was on and the wooden door open. Her eyes burned at the sight of Suzanne, lying face down near the door, a halo of blood around her. A few metres away was half. Roxana was frantic, frightened. She thought of calling emergency, but it was clear her friends were beyond help. She ran to her car, knowing instantly where to go. The Xantops' next-door neighbours, the McCollums. Bob McCollum was a doctor. Officer Brad Sargent of the Hanover Police Department was the first to respond to the emergency call. In minutes, he was joined by other officers from Hanover, the New Hampshire State Police and the Grafton County Sheriff's Department. The police searched the home to make sure the killers were gone. Then they looked into the study. An ambulance was called, but when Sergeant Patrick O'Neill saw what had happened, he radioed the dispatcher, cancelled the ambulance. The forensic pathologist would be summoned instead. Word of the killings soon began to spread. So did shock, disbelief and sorrow. The Xantops had spent 25 years cementing deep friendships around Dartmouth and the world. Phil Pakoda, a good friend of Hearth and Suzanne's, seemed to speak for many others when he said, the thought that we would go on without them is now inconceivable. A week after the murders, grief found an outlet at a memorial inside Dartmouth's Rollins Chapel. More than 600 people filed in, each receiving a program with a photo of the couple on its cover. A teacher affects eternity, Dartmouth President James Wright told the assembled mourners, quoting from Henry Adams. We learned much from their lives, and we benefit, and must continue to benefit. Be free, good friends. Be at peace. Several others who spoke that day described Half and Suzanne's professional accomplishments, 
but most focused on their hearts. Then, unexpectedly, Veronica Zantop stood. She was 29, tall, attractive and composed. Her sister, Mariana, 27, was next to her. In a sweet, clear voice, Veronica told the crowd, I wanted to thank you for my sister and I from the depths of our hearts for all the love and support we've got from everyone here. Investigators, meanwhile, had been scouring the Zantops' house for clues to the killings, which had been ruled homicides. Police seized 105 items they thought might offer evidence. Swabbings of what appeared to be blood were taken, and five partial bloody boot prints were documented. Two items stood out from the rest, though, the knife sheaths found in the study. Made of a hard composite plastic called Kydex, each sheath bore a 2.5 centimetre square SOG logo stamped on the back. The sheaths were designed to fit a knife called a SOG Seal 2000, a commando weapon sold by a Washington State company, SOG Specialty Knives. The company's name was derived from an elite and once-secret American military unit, the Studies and Observation Group. On February 12, SOG produced a list of the individuals, companies, distributors and accounts where it had shipped SEAL 2000s. On February 14th, Detective Chuck West of the New Hampshire State Police was deep into the 69-page report when something caught his eye. A Massachusetts company called Fox Firearms had bought 124 knives, a number that dwarfed the orders placed by nearly all other dealers. Owner James Fox explained that he had sold 84 of those knives, sometimes via email orders. On February 15th, West looked over the reports. Now he was really intrigued. Less than four weeks before the killings, Fox had sold two knives to someone who lived less than 50 kilometres away from Hanover, Jim Parker. In the first days after the murders, Robert and Jim had tried to live as normally as possible. In denial, Jim called it while plotting their now urgent departure from Chelsea. The Tuesday after the killings, Robert invited his sometime girlfriend, Christiana Usenza, to his house. He said he'd soon be leaving town. He said, I have to go. I, I kind of have to go. I've done something really bad. She didn't press him. The next morning, Jim showed up at Robert's house in his silver Audi. The boys drove as far as St. Louis before their sense of adventure ran out. They returned home, settling back into their normal routines. And shortly after, the police came knocking. Come on in and have a seat at the kitchen table, John Parker told the three detectives who arrived at his home on the evening of February 15th. He didn't know anything about his son buying commando knives, he said, but the Parker family had nothing to hide. As they walked in, the officers noticed one other person in the house, a wiry young man sitting on a stool. Will you need to talk to me? The young man asked. As he spoke those words, Jim Parker was thinking, Bummer, I'm screwed. After the interview, John Parker drove his son into town so he could be fingerprinted. Parker turned to Jim and asked, You didn't do anything, did you? Jim answered, No, I haven't. Come on, Dad, I'm really scared. Detectives later arrived at the Tullock's home. Cool, calm and collected, Robert admitted buying the knives with Jim, but said that they'd sold them later. Robert also went into town for fingerprinting. When he caught brief sight of his friend, no words passed between them. No words needed to. If allowed to return home, the boys knew just what they would do next. Run. 
Later, back at home, they talked on the phone and agreed on a meeting place. They hastily filled backpacks with whatever they thought might be useful. A compass, a camping axe, tomato soup. Jim scrawled a note to his parents. I just had to talk to Robert alone. I will be back in the morning. Don't call cops. It was after 3am when he slipped out. They hit the road in Jim's Audi, taking back roads from Chelsea and then picking up Vermont Route 14 towards Interstate 89. They drove for a considerable amount of time before picking up Interstate 93, heading south towards Boston. They made their way to the Massachusetts Turnpike and headed west. It was a roundabout escape route, with only one apparent benefit. It kept them away from Interstate 91, the main highway near Hanover. Soon, they thought, police would be looking for their car. Early on February 16, they walked into the Sturbridge Isles truck stop in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, and tried to find a truckie to give them a lift. Around dinner time, they finally did. The truckie took them to Columbia, New Jersey, near the Pennsylvania border. A second truckie then drove them west into Indiana. By then, a furious manhunt was underway, and police were moving westward, tracking the boys. On February 19, exactly 23 days after the murders and three days after they'd taken flight, neither Robert nor Jim resisted arrest at a truck stop in Spiceland, Indiana, as authorities cornered them. It was their last moment as a team, and their symbiotic bravado deserted them both. It's me you were looking for, Robert said calmly. You've got us. In a cell in the Henry County Jail in Newcastle, Indiana, Robert sat on the floor, crying. At one point, he said through his tears, I can't believe what I've done. Jim, being held in a recreation room, buried his head under a blanket and cried even harder. According to Detective Sergeant Elman News' detailed report, Robert stated he wished he could sit down with his mother and have dinner and do as she said. Robert stated he had screwed up and it would take 20 to 30 years for him and his family to get over it. Jim Parker later confessed to the murders of Half and Suzanne Zantop, implicating Robert Tullock. Robert pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Jim received 25 years to life behind bars. But the two killers will be separated forever by high walls and barbed wire. For a while, the Zantop daughters, grappling with the loss of their parents, considered raising the house on Trescott Road. But they abandoned that plan and instead sold it to a young family. And not long after, a swing set appeared in the yard and the house came back to life. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.